Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. This is Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. I'm the senior rabbi at Temple Beth Am in Los Angeles. And today we're studying Masechet Shabbat, page 106. If you do a quick review of the whole page, you have us see that we confront some substantive ways to deal with the deaths of siblings or members of groups of friends. And we'll come back to that with some depth a bit later. We see two possible exceptions to the rule that a milacha or labor that's prohibited on Shabbat must be one that creates tikkun, fixing, or something productive, rather than kilkul, destruction. Uh, those two exceptions, chovel, or injury, and mavir, burning, are looked at closely as to whether or not they really are exceptions or whether there are situations in which even chovel and mavir can be considered constructive rather than destructive. We've got a short section describing two rabbis having different methods for teaching their students about the length of a measurement called a double seat, uh, which is either the double the distance between the second and third fingers when one's fingers are fully expanded, or just the distance from the thumb to the third finger. And I know that we can all sleep better now knowing that there are not one but two ways of making that measurement. And that brings us to the laws of trapping on Shabbat, which finishes off the page. Let's go back to confronting death. The Talmud mentions a statement of Rabbi Chiyabar Abba in the name of Rabbi Yochanan. If a brother dies, others in the family should get worried and serious about their own lives. And similarly, if one member of your chavura, your group of friends, dies, the whole chavura must look into themselves. This is related to an important, but I'll tell you, controversial idea that if one experiences misfortune, including death, the first thing that you must do is be to look closely at your own acts and then do tshuva. So the critical question is, does this mean that you must do this because your own lack of purity of acts brought about the misfortune? That would seem to be a noxious idea to us theologically, I would think. Or that even this Misfortune is an opportunity for reflection on oneself. Whatever comes next, approaching it with a finer sense of what your life should be about, will prepare you better. It could inoculate yourself against whatever misfortune may come. Now, maybe this is an overly modern understanding of theology, and we shouldn't describe that backwards onto rabbis who may very well have understood the theology more linearly. But if you think about the holiday liturgy saying that shuva, tefillah, and sadaka, repentance, prayer, and um, giving charity, they don't cancel the severe decrees against us, as is sometimes translated. It says ma'avirin et roagazera. They make the hard decrees pass over us, pass a bit more easily. There are things that we can do in our lives not to prevent illness or misfortune, but to make our experience of them slightly less onerous. Maimonides' reading of this idea is actually more in line with what we might call a modern understanding. In the Laws of Mourning, chapter 13, Halacha 12, he says, if you don't mourn as instructed by the sages, you are considered achzar, cruel, why is that? 
ostensibly because you are not letting your heart be sufficiently emotional and distressed at the loss. Because if you were, you'd be doing something about it. You wouldn't just be wallowing, you'd be considering your own life. This cruelty that Maimonides talks about implies that this self-reflection is not to spare you from misfortune per se, there's no magic potion here, but it's rather to engage fully in a cheshbon hanefesh, a um, close looking at your own soul, which is required all the time, but must be harnessed even more intensely when faced with another's loss. As a congregational rabbi, I can share that I can't think of a single funeral or shiva in which some version of this idea is was not uh, inputted into the dynamic. The first response to loss, of course, is pain and sadness. And pastorally, I try to be present for a family initially. And yet I do encourage mourners and also those who come to comfort the mourners to use this opportunity to confront our mortality, to look at our lives with a more critical eye, to resolve to fill up our days with meaning. Psalm 49, which the rabbis determined should be read at every shiva home, reinforces this idea. If you read through it, it's not a salve on a wound. It's not really a psalm of comfort. It's a psalm of waking us up to short lives, which must be lived purposefully, or else they are as if they were barely lived at all. And speaking about how to live with purpose, let's move on to trapping animals, or more specifically, a lovely teaching embedded in the laws of trapping animals. The structure is complicated. The Talmud is basically trying to deal with three texts that have several points of disagreement. One source is a Mishnah on our page that quotes Rabbi Yehuda and the sages as disagreeing on how, how trapped a deer or other small animal needs to be in order for it to be considered fully trapped, such that if you work to trap them further from that stage, you're no longer fully viable for violating Shabbat, uh, you're no longer fully liable for violating Shabbat because the animal was already trapped. Then there's a Mishnah from Tractate Beitza that brings in the case of trapping fish and birds. And then there's a Brita or text which is parallel to the Mishnah, which rules a bit differently. And the Talmud works very hard to resolve most of these conflicts and seems to have resolved most of them by saying that the Tanaitic sources or early rabbis simply had differences of opinion. But then one answer is given to the last point of conflict about birds that says that each rabbi was teaching the law about a different kind of bird. They didn't disagree, they were just talking about different cases. Some birds, when inside any roofed structure, basically submit. They no longer fly about, and they're already considered trapped. Other birds flit around unless they are really trapped in a small enclosure. And so those texts that we thought disagreed actually don't. They were just talking about different birds. Now that the Talmud notices that it was able to resolve this bird disagreement without having to name it as a machloket tanaim, a disagreement between the sages, between Rabbi Yehuda and other rabbis, they say, perhaps the same possible resolution is present for the other disagreements around the chaya, the small animal, which they had actually already resolved by simply saying that the rabbis had differences of opinion. So they're now trying to resolve it a second time. Why go through this trouble when the point was already resolved? I think what we get from all this is a kernel of a halakha, a law, on which the Talmud was able to say there is no disagreement between the rabbis. Rabbi, they, rather, they were simply teaching the law in different circumstances. What have we gained by this? The text doubles over itself to bring a more pleasing, more settling resolution of the apparent conflict. 
and while our tradition is based on vigorous disagreement, and while that disagreement continues to infuse vitality and hopefully humility into the Jewish intellectual enterprise, in this construct we see the Stam, the anonymous author of the Gemara, working hard, perhaps more than they needed to technically, to let us know that Rabbi Yehuda and the Chachamim did not disagree. There was harmony on this point. Our tradition and our community has space for engaged debate, with each side arguing its point clearly. And our tradition also has an aspiration which transcends nearly everything else for yeshuv, for settling the matter, for peace of ideas. Because peace of ideas ultimately leads to true peace. We see that hinted at in a somewhat fanciful acronym the rabbis came up with, which links to the teaching in the previous podcast about the meaning we invest in words. When a Talmudic argument simply cannot be resolved, the Talmud says, teku. It almost certainly is an ab- a abbreviation of the fine Arabaic, Aramaic word, tekum, which means it will stand. Tie game, no resolution. The Talmud will indeed permit some arguments to end with a stalemate. Some understand the word actually to be an abbreviation of tekosh, meaning the kushya or difficulty remains. But while tekus do exist... They only permitted a teku in the Talmud after every possible approach to resolving the conflict was exhausted. It's not the first line of defense to permit things to sit in disagreement. It's the last line. Because putting aside the old joke about the Jew on the deserted island who builds two synagogues, one he davened at and one he would not step foot in, even this wonderful ancient text which bequeathed to us the concept of machloket l'shem shemayim, a disagreement in the name of heaven, and honoring such a way to debate, there was also in this document deeply focusing on Yishuv, settling the matter, so we could share community, so we could share practice, so we could share ideas, and build something together. So the teku is the last line of defense, and it's not even the real last line. Why? Because even though the word teku clearly means something as simple as let the conflict stand, built into Talmudic nomenclature was seeing that four-letter word teku as an acronym, taf yud kuf vav, tishbi yitareitz kushyot ubayot. The tishbite will resolve the difficulties and problems. Who is the tishbite? Eliyahu hanavi, Eliyahu hatishbi. Elijah, in the end of days, the one who's going to bring the Mashiach into Jerusalem will also come and bring peace even to this small intellectual disagreement. Let's meditate on that as we leave page 106 in Shabbat. We inherit from these great rabbis a zeal for reviewing the text thoroughly and a confidence to argue our position with force and also a spiritual awareness that doing all of this serves God and brings God's word more alive in the world. And we also inherit from them in both direct and oblique ways that more important than winning the argument is seeing what is shared on both sides. More messianic, more desired than finding the line of reasoning that will convince your opponent is finding the thread of truth that links the two sides that will allow you to see the other not as opponent but friend. To see the other one not one iota less committed to the full Jewish enterprise as you are. And so the ultimate goal is not victory, but peace. Shalom. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.